I want to give a quick thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. You really help keep the lights on at Dirty History. And to everyone else, if you value the show as an educational resource, meaning you learn things you didn't know you wanted to know, and laugh at things you didn't know you could, consider supporting the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirty history. Patreon.com slash dirty history. It may be just $1 a month for you, which only adds up to $12 a year, but for me and the show, it means everything. It's almost like if you saw me on the streets and you and I both had free time, would you buy me a cup of coffee? It's like two cups of coffee. That's what supporting the show on Patreon is. Help me make the show what we want it to be. I promise I won't spend the money on coffee. It'll be on useful things, but that's patreon.com slash dirty history. Thank you. And with that, on with the show. Edinburgh, Scotland, 1828. Over the course of 10 months, 16 people would go missing. The number in and of itself may not seem staggering. In fact, the only second glance you may take at it is when you likely ask, That's all? It's 1828 Edinburgh, Scotland. I gotta say, I expected more. However, what is particularly interesting about these 16 people is not only did they go missing, but later they turned up murdered. Murdered. As I like to say. And I know that may seem like an easy conclusion to take. 16 people go missing, of course they turn up dead, that's what happens. But you have to realize and take into consideration that this is 1828. Think about how easy it would be to go off the proverbial grid. There are still some edges of the map where the ink is just drying. There are, air quotes you can't see, wild areas to be explored. There aren't any GPSs, no digital footprints, no IP addresses. You can walk out the door and just as easily disappear. Therefore, it is worth noting that these 16 people, well, we know their fates. So I guess, let me rephrase the opening statement. Edinburgh, Scotland, 1828. And over the course of 10 months, 16 people were murdered. Moreover, each of these 16 bodies turned up in the dissection theater of a one Dr. Robert Knox. Perhaps the more interesting point is that each of these 16 bodies were sold to Dr. Knox for dissection in his anatomy lectures. And I'll explain why in 1828 that is curious and a bit salacious. However, before that, I guess I should rephrase the opening once more. The 16 people that were killed over those 10 months in 1828 were killed for the express purpose of selling their lifeless corpses to Dr. Robert Knox for dissection. That means that these 16 people did not make a premature purchase of the proverbial farm for the usual suspects, passion, war, an open contract, or in pursuit of a, another crime that went awry. No, these 16 people were murdered for the price their bodies could fetch on the anatomical black market, if you want to call it that. I suppose it gives you a clearer picture of what the transactions must have been like, but these 16 people were murdered for the explicit purpose of doing science. Now, in making a point to say that these killings were not done out of the usual reasons that killings occur, that's not to say that Edinburgh 
in the mid-1800s was not rife with overpopulation, disease, and crime. In fact, I would say really the opposite is true. Edinburgh in the 1800s was as overcrowded cities are one to be a haven for vice. I mean, just two decades after the killings in question, there were districts in Edinburgh where an average of 25 people lived to a single home. And when I say home, I don't mean a palace or chateau or mansion, villa, palazzo, or manor. When I say 25 people inhabited a home, I'm talking single-room shanties like a studio apartment in New York. But you know, if New York had no indoor plumbing, running water, electricity, heat, air conditioning, infrastructure that's reliable... It's not a great analogy, so perhaps I mean to say it's like owning a studio apartment in present-day New Jersey. I'm kidding, of course. New Jersey is much worse than that, but it was an overcrowded, crime-infested city, Edinburgh. And that is where part of our story is set today. You see, those 16 killings I have been referring to were committed by a duo. Two men, William Burke and William Hare who for 10 months found compensation in strangling unsuspecting victims and selling their bodies to Dr. Robert Knox for use in his private anatomy school. Now, we can easily dismiss and denounce Burke and Hare as despicable humans. And we'll get to their fates in a moment, but I fear that it is far too easy of a conclusion to make. I mean, any one of us can do a sort of moral judgment about profit-motivated murder and say, you know what, that is bad. I don't support that. But that said, we should look for the more interesting perspective in regards to the crimes of Burke, Hare, and Knox. Why are they doing it? I would argue that Burke and Hare honestly were rather expedient. The body business in 1800s Edinburgh was booming. I mean, because at that point, the only legally Obtainable bodies for medical and scientific research were those of hanged murderers, and contrary to popular belief about Edinburgh, Scotland in 1828, there weren't enough of those bodies to go around. Therefore, many medical practitioners, anatomists, scientific researchers, and the like, they had to turn to what we would consider less than savory means of obtaining bodies for the sake of furthering our understanding of the human anatomy and to further the field of what we're focusing on today, surgery. And I know it's a conundrum. Can we condemn the actions of anatomists who pay men to dig up fresh corpses if they are giving those orders so they may have the materials to practice a new procedure that could save hundreds, maybe even thousands of lives? Yes. Burke and Hare finding the freshest corpses by making them may not be a morally upright thing to do if we can make a moral judgment about anything. But I ask that going forward in this episode, we check the easily obtainable notion that what was happening to obtain these bodies was, you know, air quotes you can't see, wrong. And that maybe what was happening to these bodies once they were received doesn't make much sense. We should check that notion as well. For instead, we should focus on the structures of the society in which these researchers and surgeons were in that made them resort to these methods. For in the field of history, we are slaves to context, and as you well know, so am I, 
And we must see that these characters and trends that we are studying are only as elegant in design as that which has come before them. It's hard to do history when you are within it. All of our thought that is not what you would call groundbreaking is limited to the furthest extent that our knowledge has come before. And you can even argue that that quote groundbreaking thought or idea is just the next evolution of thought that the structures of your society have given you the context to reach. Because dirty history is context, and context is history. I only say all of this because an important note I want to make is that body snatching and grave robbing were relatively common in lucrative ventures in the early 1800s. And that's, that's not because anyone thought it was a morally upright thing, although some may have, but because the context that anatomy and science was occurring in required alternative means of obtaining specimens. For some of the structures of the scientific world to that point deemed to be quite... It was a quiet necessity for many. So common, in fact, that cages were often built over graves, iron cages, for those who could afford them. There were cemetery watch groups. They were a common deterrent with volunteers prowling graveyards to ensure their integrity and all manner of gravesite booby traps from explosive ordnance to deadly impaling spikes were constructed to defend loved ones from being, well, snatched and used for medical dissection. In my research, I actually found a few anecdotes of the tragedy of death in a family being compounded with an unsuspecting mourner or passerby triggering a gravesite booby track and falling victim to it. And they either experienced a serious injury or death. And we'll get to in just a moment why the sustaining of serious injury may not have been much better than death. But despite the cages, patrols, and Nightmarish booby traps, a skilled and seasoned team of body snatchers could still hit some six gravesites in a night. The best of these body snatchers were efficient and quick. They would dig a small hole at the head of the grave, break through the wooden coffin, and using a metal hook, drag the body through the head of the coffin, out the grave, and under the cover of darkness, transport it to the highest bidder or whoever it was that commissioned the body snatchers to provide a body. So you must be wondering, if grave robbing and body snatching were so common, why do Burke and Hare have the degree of notoriety they do? Why why am I even mentioning it? I mean, what's the point of us wasting our time studying a pair of bums like Burke and Hare? Well, I would argue that there's because of a it's because of a morbid irony that surrounds their crimes that has piqued interest over time. And as you would come to expect as a listener of the show, I am a fan of that particular brand of irony. And as it came to pass, Burke and Hare's, let's call them nighttime operations, were found out. Both were promptly arrested, trial proceedings were set, and if found guilty, the price they would pay for murder is, of course, as you guessed, death. And death is a strong motivator for most. William Hare was no exception to that rule. Hare turned against Burke quicker than you could say Lord Baelish. He gave a confession to the courts and provided evidence against Burke in exchange for immunity. 
And with evidence and a confession, the prosecution had no problem finding William Burke guilty. He was strung up and later dissected, you know, for science. Burke's skin was flayed and made into commemorative trinkets, not too unlike William Lane's scrotum tobacco pouch that we talked about in an earlier episode. In fact, Burke's skeleton was and is displayed at the Anatomical Museum of Edinburgh, where, by all accounts, you can still find it today. And all of this context leads me to a logical conclusion I want you to note. Medicine, at least for a while, is the Wild West, so to speak. I mean, it was chaotic. It was at one time unknowable. At another, it seemed like the sky was the limit. And again, at another, it was deemed unholy, painful, risky. I think the Hare and Burke anecdote conveys that idea clearly. Perhaps going back and listening to my talk with Aaron Fried will clear up some things about some of what we'll talk about today. Because as we get into the episode... Let's remember the all-important Hippocrates quote. Anatomy is the foundation of medicine. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. Before we really get started... I realize that podcasting is an inherently auditory medium. It really doesn't take a genius to figure that out, and as best as I can, I could paint you with words a picture of what 1800s operating theaters may be like, or what the back room of a 1200s barbershop may smell like, but what I want you to do right now is pause this episode. Don't leave the episode. Pause it and do two things, and then come right back. First, look at the painting, The Gross Clinic. After you do that, look at the sketch, Gin Lane. I think these two works will get you into the proper visual space to think about the content of this episode. Because, as well as I might be able to paint with words, nothing will beat these two works in terms of showing you where surgery is during the chronology of our episode, and what the cities look like where our surgeries and stories are set. They are simply hectic works that set the stage for this episode rather well. So go ahead, take a look. Don't go down a freaking rabbit hole and start looking at a bunch of pictures. Look at those two, come right back, and I'll be waiting for you. Welcome back to some of you, to the others who inevitably did not pause the episode and have continued listening. Last chance. Now we must ask why doctors, scientists, and surgeons resorted to less than savory means of obtaining bodies. And I know, I know, we kind of answered that already. They only had access to the bodies of executed murderers, which were not as common as the demand for bodies, well, demanded. Essentially, the need for bodies was larger than the supply of bodies. There were no systems in place for voluntary body donation. That simply was not yet a thing. There was no guarantee of having bodies to work with for these doctors and surgeons and researchers, though some believe they should have that very guarantee. 
So we have that answer. There was a consideration of supply and demand. What we didn't answer was why that was the case. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in the moral politics surrounding the answer to this question, but the reasoning behind why we don't see a procedure for body donation for everyone, save executed murderers, is similar to why we have barbers in the Middle Ages that are setting broken bones and amputating gangrenous limbs, which was often what happened if you were unfortunate enough to have a bone protruding from your skin. To simplify it all down for you, and perhaps some of the more medical, seasoned medical historians will say to a fault, but I would argue it's out of efficiency and brevity, dirty history is a supplement, not the whole enchilada. So, all that said, I would like to trace the origins of the barber-surgeon conglomeration to the Council of Tiors. That's in 1163 and 1179, and the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. The dates are not that important, they're kind of arbitrary demarcations. But at these um, three meetings, something happened. I mean, there were a lot of things that happened, but we need not delve into those for purposes regarding this episode and the scope. But monks and priests were forbidden from performing surgeries as it was found to violate the temple of the Holy Spirit via violating our bodies. You see, up until papal prohibitions prevented them from doing so, monks and priests were the primary medical practitioners of their time. And after papal prohibitions were in place, monks would, you know, on the low, service physicians to wealthy clients, but with the glut of medical practitioners prohibited from practicing, someone needed to take up the proverbial scalpel and quick. There were mostly knives and scissors, hence my use of proverbial. But after monks' hands are tied by the church bureaucracy, we have a problem for the general public who needed immediate medical condition, uh, medical attention. It is in these heady times that the barber-surgeon became more common. Or tonsores, as they were known in more ancient times. Fun fact, barbering was once known as the tonsorial art. I just think it sounds all around more badass. Tonsorial art. I'm bringing it back. Now, there were periods prior to 1215, which again is an arbitrary demarcation, but there were periods prior to papal prohibitions where barbers were closely, they closely resembled what we think of as barbers today. They cut hair, trimmed beards, and provided services similar to what we know they do now. I mean, dating back to the ancient Rome times, ancient Roman times rather, those tonsores were more barber than surgeon. However, their services expanded to Lancing boils, pulling teeth, setting brakes, amputations, and the like. This is especially true as we see those papal prohibitions on surgery becoming more stringent. As monks become less involved, barbers step up more. I mean, after all, they already have knives and scissors and other tools needed to do surgeries. Might as well put them to good use, right? Now, a quick note that I think is important to put in is that The barber-surgeon was kind of a barber-surgeon-dentist. And I say that because he was the same man who drew out teeth in addition to drawing blood, cutting off limbs, and cutting hair. Again, to rely on art for some enlightenment, the Haywain Trippich by a personal favorite of mine, Euronymous Bosch, depicts, among other things in a chaotic surrealist nightmare, a tooth puller. 
I would say it seems Bosch was not too thrilled with the profession, especially if you were unfortunate enough to be a patient of one of these tooth pullers. Moreover, it's just an excuse to look at cool art, but do you really need an excuse for that? Now, the Haywin Trippich, one more time. Now, just as barbers around the world today have varying techniques for cutting and styling your hair, there were different techniques for extracting and maintaining teeth. There were, at least not in the Middle Ages, too many restrictions or procedures for the practice of surgery as a whole. There didn't seem to be too many, if any, unifying ideas or prescriptive measures in place for this field of surgery at all. Surgery seems to be an afterthought, something more artisan than academic, a simple procedure of hacking and cutting limbs from screaming victims. Therefore, with the assumption that speed was always requisite, techniques and ideas regarding surgery seem to change regionally, sometimes even person to person. And of course, I came with a few examples. Ambrose Paré, a famous Renaissance surgeon from France, that's why I can't pronounce his name because I'm not French, he had some suggestions for measures to be taken during extraction. Quote, and this will, again, it's going to get a little graphic. Quote, the extraction of a tooth should not be carried out with too much violence, as one risks producing luxation of the jaw or concussion of the brain and eyes, or even bringing away a portion of the jaw together with the tooth. Not to speak of other serious accidents which may supervene, as, for example, fever, abundant hemorrhage, and even death. Bringing away a portion of the jaw. I mean, there were, there were experts of tooth extraction during this period, but many were just figuring it out as they went along. Because yanking out teeth from screaming mouths until they figured it out, that's, that's what they did. They figured it out until something worked. But then, would what they found out that worked, would it work in every case? Or was the tooth decayed to such a point in such a location that your method worked in that instance alone? What if the tooth is more or less rotted? Or what if it's abscessed? What if it's an incisor or a molar? What if it's a wisdom tooth? There are so many minute differences and slight adaptations that no one could have possibly had all the answers all the time. There was so, so much trial and error carried out on fully awake, unanesthetized patients. And just as each tooth puller had a method for pulling teeth, each text or folk remedy had a different method for deodorizing the mouths filled with rotting teeth. This particular example came from the English Man's Treasures by Thomas Vickery in 1630. To take away the stinking of the mouth, wash mouth with water and vinegar and true mastiche, then wash the mouth with a decoction of aniseeds, mints, and cloves, sodden in wine. This and other remedies may in themselves have some relation with early Chinese medical texts like the Penzao or the Canon of Medicine that suggest to relieve a toothache, one should, quote, roast a piece of garlic and crush it between the teeth, mix with chopped horseradish seeds, salt petri, make it to a paste with human milk, form pills, and introduce one into the nostril on the opposite side to where the pain is felt. Now, I'm not much of a reactionary guy, but 
they wanted you to crush garlic between your teeth. I'm sure there's a lot of great breath when that happened. Mix that saliva garlic mixture with horseradish seeds and salt. And then you need to squirt some human milk into it. Human milk, specifically. And you make a paste. You turn that paste into a pill, and then you shove it up your nose. Now, it would be conjecture to say that both of these texts, the Englishman's Treasures and the one from the Canon of Medicine, were interrelated. But rather, I would point out that there was a cross-pollination of ideas between regions when it can occur, and that techniques vary regionally, dependent on the context and structure that precedes these ideas and remedies. Now, can we say for sure that any one of these ideas that came before influenced the other? No, we, we can't say that for sure. But we can note that at various times in various places, people were coming to terms with rotting teeth and stinking mouths, and I think that's just as important. And that as of yet, these remedies can be seen as practical and less academic. That's not to say the concerns of anatomists, surgeons, barbers, and common folk ended at dentistry. No, those concerns cut much deeper into the body. Because aside from tooth extractions, another of these post-papal prohibition services, say that five times fast, offered by barbers in the Middle Ages, we could see some examples prior to the arbitrary demarcation of 1215, but this is for the sake of setting chronology, the operation was known as trepanning, or holes were born into the skull to relieve pressure on the brain. Again, trepanning. Holes dug into the skull to relieve pressure on the brain, done so without anesthesia or antiseptic. And this operation, as many topics on this show are wont to do, dates back to the ancient world with both Galen and Hippocrates having written about the procedure and the techniques of doing it. The service will come to be seen as more complicated of a procedure, and we'll later see it stripped away from the barber repertoire as the inevitable split between barber and surgeon becomes more apparent. But no service offered by barbers save cutting hair is as well documented as bloodletting, which I guess in some ways is similar to trepanning, in that you're opening the human body to relieve it of something from the inside, whether that be pressure or bad blood, which is throwing off the balance of humors. And it was so commonly used, bloodletting was, and so coverall in its application that bloodletting was used as a cure-all for ailments ranging from a cough and a sore throat to the plague. It's like the Middle Ages equivalent of Tylenol or aspirin or something. It was seen as a way to get the humors in balance and relieve pain or disease. Traditionally, bloodletting was performed with a lancet. And with any cutting of the skin during the Middle Ages, and really any time before antiseptics were common, the risk for infection was ever-present. And at that, it seems like as good a time as any to take a brief, uh, we're going to take a little side, side swipe here, get on a little sidetrack, because I want to introduce the four, the big four, the four major 
post-operative infections that plague doctors, barbers, surgeons, hospitals, and homes alike. It's important to know because it is what everyone's going to be dealing with as we get further into this episode. And as I list each of these infections, I will give you a brief description of what it is and an account of what the suffering from it may look like or feel like. Needless to say, it's getting a little, little graphic. So first up on the pain train is erysipelas, in which your skin turns bright red and shiny, and you get a high fever, tremors, and probable death. Now sure, we laid out what it is and its symptoms, but how does it play out on the human body? What would it be like for a student or family member to watch Erysipelas and the following three infections that we'll mention afterwards run their course? That's what I'm interested in. That's what's going to get us at the heart of what being a barber or surgeon or a barber surgeon during these heady days of pre-antiseptic surgery would look like. The following passage comes from the summer 1920 edition of the Journal of the National Medical Association. Ersipilis is an acute inflammation of the skin, spreading like wildfire through the lymphatics. The onset is usually sudden, with chill, fever, and vomiting. In the typical picture, one sees a hardening of the skin over the nose and surrounding tissue, rapidly spreading until it reaches the point where the skin is closely adherent to the deeper tissue, the swelling being greatest where the deep tissue is loose, as in the eyelids, but seldom produces conjunctivitis. Sometimes you will see the condition burrowing from a simple inflammation of the skin to the deeper underlying tissues, even involving the bone. You see, swelling greatest at the eyes and deepest to the bone, and inflammation. So it's a skin infection, really, that causes tremors, high fever, and eventual death. Sounds awful, but doesn't sound completely awful comparatively. I mean, I think I would rather have Erysipelas than second up on the pain train, the ever-popular hospital gangrene, which is specifically, as I know gangrene is by some more wildly attributed to other infections, Hospital gangrene are ulcers that lead to decay of flesh, muscle, and bone. And with a description as lovely as that, do you really need a first-hand account? Why, yes. Yes, you do. I'd advise you to put down the sandwich and strap in for the remainder of the episode. It's going to get very graphic. Without further ado, quote, A 28-year-old private from the 9th Mississippi Regiment, wounded on September 2, 1864, during the Battle of Jonesboro, Georgia. He was set to Macon for treatment. His wound was caused by a mini-ball which had passed through the muscles of the neck and shoulder above and almost parallel to the scapula. Gangrene supervened on September 20th, and Jones examined the patient ten days later. The muscles of the neck, he discovered, were ex extensively denuded, and the clavicle was exposed throughout a considerable portion of its anterior surface. In the act of swallowing, he remarked, the play of the muscles could be most distinctively seen 
and studied. Death mercifully ended this doomed soul's suffering on October 2nd through a massive hemorrhage. An autopsy revealed the infection had almost completely destroyed the external jugular vein. So he died from extensive bleeding because the gangrene ate through his skin, muscle, down to the bone, and then the infection cut through his jugular vein and he bled out. The infection ate through his jugular vein and he bled out. A brief reprieve from the gore is septicemia, which is your run-of-the-mill blood poisoning. No further talk required. So we have ursipilis, hospital gangrene, and septicemia. And our final choice for the big four post-operative infections is pyemia, which is the development of pus-filled abscesses. Mmm. This account of pyemia comes from H.W. Sigworth's entry in the Medical and Surgical Reporter on the 13th of January, 1877. If you're not a fan of pus, I would um, plug your ears for the time being. Quote, I was called to see John Wall, farmer aged 33. He had been sick 10 days under the care of an eclectic know-nothing who said he had the distemper. There was a fusion over almost the entire right lung great oppression and breathing, and a troublesome cough. On the 15th, there was a slight bulging between the second and third ribs. And on the 16th, he was expectorating pus. He was spitting up pus. I lanced the point between the second and third ribs when five pints of pus was discharged. I inserted a tent and ordered it removed twice a day so as to empty it out of pus. On the 20th, there was a softened tumor above the clavicle. I lanced it and found it also contained pus. I inserted a tent, and I found that it discharged for nearly two weeks. I was planning to inject the cavity when on the 25th there appeared a slight bulging just in front of the shoulder blade between the 6th and 7th ribs. I had such good success in finding pus that I boldly stuck a thumb lance into it one half inch and found no pus, but found blood, and plenty of it. I'll relieve your suspense. The patient miraculously survived. The doctor stopped the bleeding, and after draining all of the pus-filled cavities, he cleaned them out, stitched them up, and the patient healed and went on his merry way, farming until his inevitable death. And let's not kid ourselves into thinking that these big four infections pyemia, hospital gangrene, septicemia, and I'm forgetting the fourth one. Ersipilis. That's what it was. So let's not kid ourselves in the thing that these big four were only plaguing middle-aged, middle-ages rather, bloodletting barbers. In fact, it was as found in Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris's book, The Butchering Art, that, quote, between 1834 and 1859, 41 young men died after contracting fatal infections at St. Bartholomew's Hospital before ever qualifying as doctors. These weren't patients that died of infection. They were aspiring doctors. 
Perhaps that's not the most convincing statement when taken by itself. But I want to establish that infection was everywhere and everyone had an idea of how it spread. After all, how could you not, especially if you worked in a hospital ward, which, as it turns out, was one of the most likely places to catch an infection. In fact, the simple act of just being on the ward in the hospital or doing research on a human body was a surefire way to perhaps catch something. There are stories of doctors accidentally nicking their fingers during a dissection and dying shortly thereafter from infection, usually something involving blood poisoning. What it boils down to is simple. If sustaining an injury doesn't kill you, and the pain and shock of surgery doesn't kill you, post-operative infection most likely would. For example, quote, In 1825, visitors to St. George's Hospital discovered mushrooms and maggots thriving in the damp, dirty sheets of a patient recovering from a compound fracture. Your leg, mushrooms and maggots growing and thriving. In the hospital wards, if they were just that dirty, how could one possibly survive that strenuous post-operative period? The truth of it is, many didn't. For example, in England and Wales, in the 1840s, approximately 3,000 mothers died each year from bacterial infections such as childbed fever. This amounted to roughly one death for every 210 confinements. Many women also died from pelvic abscesses, hemorrhaging or peritonitis, the latter being a terrible condition, really is, in which bacteria travels through the bloodstream and inflames the peritoneum, the lining of the abdomen. As I said, At the beginning of the episode, medicine and surgery were the Wild West, and their existential threat wasn't lawlessness or human nature or Clint Eastwood with two six-shooters. It was the seemingly omnipresent thing that was infection. It was everywhere and in everything. And at least for many people, when I say that, They took it quite literally, since the idea of miasma was a leading theory in how disease and infection spread. For example, in 1844, Neil Arnott, a renowned Scottish physician, wrote, The poison of atmospheric impurity arising from the accumulation in and around people's dwellings of the decomposing remnants of the substances used for food and from the impurities given out from their own bodies. The theory of miasma postulated that disease and infection spread through atmospheric impurity, which is a fancy scientific way of saying bad smells. And at the time of his writing that passage, there was plenty of atmospheric impurity to go around. And I will get to that in just a second. I want to take a moment to recognize how terrifying that idea had to be for people who lived in major cities like 1820s Edinburgh, Scotland, with no plumbing or running water. Let it sink in. There you go. I think a more illustrative example of this 
is in a larger degree the experiences of the people in London just 30 years after Burke and Hare's shocking acts shook Edinburgh. That's when the great stink spread through the city. Yes, that was how they referred to it. It was the summer of 1858, and the great stink crept through London. Human excrement was piled up on the riverbanks. Michael Faraday, I'm sure his name sounds familiar, said of the Thames during this period, quote, The feculence rolled up in clouds so dense that they were visible at the surface. Water was a, quote, opaque, pale brown fluid. The smell was so bad that members of Parliament had to cover their windows with heavy cloth just so they could continue working. The Times reported that government officials, quote, bent upon investigating the matter to its very depth, venturing into the library where they were instantaneously driven to retreat, each man with a handkerchief to his nose. You know when you were walking down the street and you were just smacked in the face with a horrible smell from a dumpster or a steaming sewer grate? 1858 London, that smell is inescapable. It is the entire city through and through. And if you run into that smell and you were a proponent of miasma, which many were at that moment, you just upped your chances of catching some horrible disease or infection. You see, it was the bad air that gave you the disease, not the fact that you were having an operation performed with a used bloody from the last patient's scalpel, or the fact that the dressings on your leg for your compound fracture are the same they just use on a patient who died from gangrene. Moreover, it was the bad air that gave you cholera. It was not drinking from the Thames where human waste drained and dead carcasses rolled into and where all manner of rubbish was simply tossed. It was the bad air. Not your diet, which is... A Dr. Lister observed as such, quote, Besides consuming large quantities of beer on a daily basis, nearly all of his patients ate huge amounts of cheap meat, but very few vegetables or portions of fruit. Over the summer, two people came into Lister's ward with sunken eyes, ghostly pale skin, and tooth loss, the telltale signs of scurvy. So we have poor diet and health habits, poor sanitation, and infrastructure to promote cleanliness, along with high rates of infection and disease. What else is at work against barber surgeons and medical practitioners? Well, you could look at the increased urbanization and industrialization that left no shortage of disease and injury, which kept hospitals and barbershops densely populated. For example, between 1834 and 1850, Charing Cross Hospital treated 66,000 emergencies, including 16,552 falls from scaffolds or buildings, 1,308 accidents involving steam engines, mill cogs, and cranes, 5,090 road crashes, and 2,088 burns or scalds. On a more specific and human level, you could have cases like that of the 35-year-old William Duff, who severely scalded his face and upper torso while lighting a candle over a manhole at a new oil works in Keith Place. Or 
something a little more brutal, like 18-year-old Joseph Neal, who was working at a local munitions factory when he placed a tin flask that he thought contained tea over the fire. Only after it was too late did he realize the flask was actually filled with two pounds of gunpowder. And the hospital often dealt with fractured skulls, severed hands, and fatal falls. And once you get into the hospitals, as I said earlier, there was no guarantee that you would survive that experience. I found a troubling account by a one Dr. Syme, who experienced significant hemorrhaging during what he thought was going to be a routine surgery. Just know that he was able to handle it, because he was very skilled. I would say there were very few skilled surgeons as Syme, especially not the barber surgeons of old. He said, quote, had it not been for the thorough seasoning and scenes of dreadful hemorrhage, I certainly should have been startled. It seemed indeed at first sight as if the vessels which supplied so many large and crossing jets of arterial blood could never all be closed. It may be imagined that we did not spend much time admiring this alarming spectacle. A single instant was sufficient to convince us that the patient's safety required all our expedition. In the course of a few minutes... The hemorrhage was effectively restrained by the application of 10 or 12 ligatures. And it's here that I should note that I've been coming at you pretty quick, with many accounts across time of surgery and its complications and disease and infection and the great stink, and it all may seem a little overwhelming. That is the point. I want to establish the chaos in which many of these people had to work. And I should also note, so I'm not accused of playing it fast and loose with chronology, that these accounts have come from barbers, surgeons, barber surgeons, and physicians of many periods across time. The goal is not to give you an accurate picture of a single time and a single place, but rather to allow you a holistic understanding of the challenges of being a medical practitioner in the days before antiseptic and anesthesia. So for context, we should know where medical London came from and how it developed and what it looked like, something a little more specific and grounded to round out the episode. London was dominated by an elite-headed guild-based socioeconomic structure. That's a mouthful. Surgeons, barbers, and medical practitioners were not outside of that guild-based structure. In fact, I alluded to it earlier, Barber surgeons were looked at like artisans, not academics. I mean, they would have to advertise their services, like, well, a barbershop would today. Which is an interesting connection I want to make. Have you ever wondered why a barber pole is a barber pole or where it comes from? It originates to the ways in which barbers would advertise that they performed bloodletting, which was to display bowls of coagulated blood in the shop window blood they had just previously let out. I also read in a few sources that barbers would string up extracted teeth to advertise that service as well, which makes me think that barber shops were even more metal in the 1200s. They had bowls of coagulated blood and teeth strung up on strings. Now, that whole practice of leaving bulls of coagulated blood in the window was banned in 1307 in London. It was found that the blood had to be dumped directly and straight away into the Thames River. 
We know how well that works out for so many. But to advertise bloodletting, you had to evolve with the times. Post-1307, you can no longer leave a bowl of blood out in the window. So something new came about. The barbers began displaying the washed, bloody rags they used to stop the bleeding. They were tied around a pole to dry. And the wind would blow, and then the rags would begin to wrap around the pole, and you had these white, clean rags and these red, dirty rags wrapping around a pole from the wind. And that seems to be the earliest proto-example of a barber pole. As time went on, people began to say, oh, there's a barber shop, there's the red and white stripes. Barbers began to just paint on red and white stripes onto a pole as opposed to hanging out their rags. That said a little context on bloodletting, which is a service thought to be necessary as a means of balancing the four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. The thought was that by cutting the skin and releasing blood, the barber was balancing the four humors and thereby curing whatever ailment was being caused for the humorous imbalance. What came to be viewed as more effective was the use of leeches as opposed to the lancet. And that is where the top ball of the barber pole is thought to come from. Because you had the, the main pole part, which is the red and white, the bloody rags. Then you had the top ball, which is thought to be the bowl where the leeches were held for later blood sucking. And then the bottom bowl is where the blood drained into. During the so-called leech craze of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the leech was established as a reliable and in some cases superior means of bloodletting outside the more traditional lancet. This is achieved by maintaining the identity of the leech in a conceptual tension between a living organism and a mechanical tool. So you see, the use of the leech is interesting because the surgery became viewed as more academic and less artisan, less practical. The leech was also argued to be less of a physical creature and more of a reliable tool. An interesting uh, evolution. As surgery evolved, so does the idea of the leech. Fun, right? The success of the leech in the early 19th century relied upon being rendered a predictable and safe medical tool. Accordingly, medical enthusiasts paid unswerving attention to specifying how best to handle and interact with their new companion during the bloodletting encounter. Just like there were many different ways to pull teeth and keep teeth you know, maintained or different ways to amputate a gangrenous limb, there were different ways to use a leech. Each way tried to make a leech more efficient, seem more safe and reliable. Because screwing up with a leech sucks. An important point of collaboration was the site at which the leech went to work. Removing a leech that had bitten at the wrong location was an unpleasant and difficult procedure, potentially damaging to the leech and the patient. You had to put the leech at the right place. Consequently, communication between the medical practitioner, leech, and patient was a process that operated across the leaky distinctions between animals, human, and medicine. It had to be possible. So, one technology, for example... It was a designed leech tube 
you put a leech in a tube and it was allowed the medical practitioner to communicate precisely the location at which he wished the leech to work. It's almost like a, uh, like a syringe, a needle. You find the specific location, you load the leech, and the leech would suck on because the tube opens up at one specific area. And it was here, in this illustrative account, that we see the split and that barber-surgeon idea. Because up to this point, we have heard from individuals who consider themselves barbers, individuals who consider themselves surgeons, individuals who consider themselves barber-surgeons, and others in between, some of which were just doing their jobs, that's how they viewed themselves. We were just people doing our jobs. The success of many operations depended on the medical practitioner, like the leech, being seen as reliable and skilled and precise. You see, the barber-surgeon distinction that has persisted through the Middle Ages is not something that lasts into the 19th century. We see that whole conglomerate of people disintegrate. The act of calling someone a barber-surgeon and that being a clear distinction is in actuality not clear at all because the arbitrary title given to invasive medical practitioners was way too broad and way too vague. Like their counterparts in other livery companies, elite officials of London's Barber Surgeons Company, the largest and most civically active of the city's group of medical practitioners, it strove to assert their occupation's legitimacy. To do that, they enforced regulations, they ensured brotherly behavior, and they policed trade boundaries as a means of maintaining control over the practice and public image of their work. So we're talking in the 1800s, mid-1800s, the Barber Surgeons Company wants to become more legitimate. It wants to be less artisan and more academic. So they start putting in all of these roles for their, for their uh, company. A couple things to establish. The medical practitioner could not themselves, they could never escape the guilt system. It was the structure in which the economic society worked. They had to work within it. And like any other guild, the barber surgeon's company wanted to assert itself as something greater. They strove for more reliability. They strove for more notoriety. The trouble was that membership in the barber surgeon company ran the gamut of academics and artisans. There was such a diverse group of people in the London Barber Surgeon Company. You had well-read surgical writers who were on the cutting edge of medical advancement. But in the same group, you also had illiterate paupers who thought themselves quick with a knife. To offset this gap, company regulations maintained clear distinctions between the two. They limited barbers, who were often depicted as dishonest and skillful in popular literature. They gave them minor surgical procedures, such as bloodletting, removing teeth, lancing boils. Surgeons' tasks, on the other hand, ran the gamut from trepanning to setting bones and amputating limbs, more complicated procedures. And that's where the difference between the barber and the surgeon began to lie in the uh, 1800s. The surgeon held more academic esteem and Research became more academic, and schools were established, and we see that barber-surgeon distinction disappear because there was a more... You viewed the surgeon as more reliable. He was able to do more complicated procedures and more difficult operations, so you start going to him for all of them. And we see the 
barber becoming more tonsorial artist than surgeon. The pendulum swung back in the direction away from surgery. Because at one time there were monks and priests. They were the surgeons. And the barbers were the tonsores, the hair cutters. And then the pendulum swung. There were barber surgeons. The guys that cut hair, but also lanced boils, set broken bones, dealt with infections. But now it's swung back. There are surgeons and there are barbers. So when you walk into your barber shop, you might be greeted with a hot towel and perhaps a PBR if you're particularly unlucky. What you won't find is as Jean-Jacques Rousseau found in the operating theaters of old, quote, stinking corpses, livid running flesh, blood, repellent intestines, horrible skeletons, pestilential vapors. I think many of you would agree with him when he says, quote, believe me, this is not the place where I will go looking for amusements. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this has been Dirty History. And if you like what you heard here and value the show as an educational resource, please like and subscribe to the show and support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dirtyhistory. You can also find us on our website, dirtyhistorypod.com. We have the whole backlog of episodes. We have our links to social media accounts. We have our shop. We have a bunch of other goodies over there, show notes, footnotes, the whole bit. You can also stay up to date with the show on our social media accounts. We're on Instagram at Dirty History Pod. We're on Twitter at Pod Dirty, P-O-D-D-I-R-T-Y. And on Facebook and Tumblr by searching The Dirty History Podcast. The show's art direction is by Woodrow Cower, who also helps out with some of the research and writing. He's really the in-house renaissance man. After all, Rome wasn't built in a day and certainly not by one person. I'm your humble host, Thomas Thompson. Thank you for wanting to learn that which you shouldn't. I'll talk to you soon. Must